Hi, all. Thanks so much for joining us on Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we welcome Dr. Asif Merchant, who is based in Boston, where he serves as the Chief of Geriatrics at Newton Wellesley Hospital. He's the Chair of Ger- the Geriatrics Committee at Mass Medical Society, and he's an Associate Clinical Professor at Tufts University. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good morning. So I would love to talk to you about what you've seen working in the nursing homes and through all of your else in the hospital and your nursing homes throughout COVID. What have you seen and what is just like the glaring message that you've gotten from all of that? Yes, Stephanie. So, you know, the last one year or one plus years have been really challenging working in the nursing homes. Um, You know, I've had some opinion pieces in Washington Post about this Um, and it was hard. It's been a really rough and hard one year uh, because the number of deaths that we have seen in the last year is is tremendous. It's huge. Um, and then, you know, it was that perfect storm that, you know, we were all scared of when we first heard about COVID-19 and COVID-19 making it to the West Coast of the U.S. Uh, you know, I told somebody, I, I hope it doesn't get here because once if it does and if it gets into the nursing home, then we're done for. And unfortunately, my fears, you know, came true. And and ever since then, I've not really had time to breathe. Uh, but it's been it's been hard work and and trying to save lives and and uh, salvage whatever we have. What's come out of it through that? And what have you learned now, a year into this, where things are starting to loosen? What's that like? You know, it's a sigh of relief. Um, you know, the vaccinations were almost uh, miraculous and, you know, the way they're working, it's nothing short of, you know, a, a gift from God, I, I believe, um, because we've seen a drastic improvement in how things were and how things are going to be. Um, you know, we are not seeing any more deaths anymore in the nursing homes other than, you know, deaths you expect from, from usual causes but not the, uh, the kind of deaths that we were seeing. So I think that's a welcome change. Um, we've learned a lot. We've learned how to, you know, construct an airplane in the middle of a flight, uh, really, you know, had to change a lot of things, um, uh, you know, very quickly um, without much guidance. Uh, it was almost, we were learning as we were doing things. Uh, you know, there was a lot of common sense, a lot of, uh, you know, best practices that we had to implement uh, at a time where we had very little staffing in nursing homes. Um, you know, it was not only just the COVID-19, it was taking care of, you know, dehydration and, you know, nutrition, um, isolation, you know, and as a consequence of that now, you know, depression or lack of that social contact. So, uh, you know, the challenges go well beyond just, you know, COVID-19. And Asif, you had mentioned uh, as we were preparing for this conversation uh, that even prior to to COVID-19, that nursing homes were generally not receiving the level of attention that they should have. Um, So maybe can you comment a little bit about that? What was really missing from that attention? So Pura, you've been in healthcare for several years and, you know, I I think you can uh, identify with this, you know, nursing homes were not really talked about much. So you know, the, the healthcare system in the United States is very hospital centric or, you know, uh, PCPs do get some attention, but it's also very 
uh, specialty, uh, you know, driven and, and procedural and hospitals. And hospitals did not really understand what happens to their patients when they go to a nursing home. It was almost that they disappear into this black hole and then somehow reemerge. You know, sometimes better, sometimes worse, sometimes not at all. Um, you know, since the Affordable Healthcare Act and the advent of ACOs, there's been some focus on nursing homes and primarily from a view of, uh, you know, an expense. But, you know, who utilizes nursing homes? It is the frail, the elderly in most instances. It is the most vulnerable uh, section of our population. Um, nobody wants to be in a nursing home. They have to be in a nursing home because they can't be taken care of. And this is a segment of population that sometimes gets overlooked. And it shouldn't because, you know, nursing home care is expensive. Uh, you know, elders, uh, seniors are the largest utilizers of healthcare. Um, you know, so we got some focus, but the margins in the nursing homes, and there are a lot of for-profit nursing homes uh, who do really want to make a profit, um, you know, operate on bare-bone staffing. It was, you know, they were almost at the edge anyways. And, and you know, anything could tip them over, but, you know, we were hit with a storm. Um, and I think that is what led to this kind of a, um, you know, disaster, so as to speak, uh, for, for nursing homes in the last one year. In addition to, to the attention, is there any more funding that's coming in uh, to, to, to help support kind of some new positions that need to be created? Yeah, I think there's been some talk in Congress about, you know, additional funding. Um, you know, as I said, the funding for nursing homes has been dwindling. There was, you know, not a adjustment to inflation for, for several years. Now there's been some talk, there was some stimulus, uh, but, you know, we will see when it, it gets there and, and how much of that is actually going to go back into patient care and improvement of processes. You know, that's something to be seen. Why is this population forgotten? Everybody gets older, you know, if you have that privilege. Why doesn't anybody realize that we need more help? Is there, does there need to be more of a focus on it in, you know, medical school whenever you're training to get more exposure on this? Or is it just, is it depressing? What is it? Why isn't there more of a focus on this population? I think there are many reasons, and I, I would be guessing, you know, to those reasons, because I don't know the exact, I don't think anybody knows uh, why, why that the case is. You know, most of the doctors who are in training, and I think you identified this, have no real experience, you know, going to a nursing home, leave alone working in a nursing home. You know, the way medical schools and residency training is structured, it's more, again, hospital-centric, as you can imagine, and that's why we make you know, really good hospitalists, but not very good uh, geriatricians. You know, the number of geriatricians in the country now is around, you know, roughly around 7,300. Uh, when I did my fellowship training almost 20 years ago, we were close to about 10,000. So you can see in the last 20 years, the numbers are still dwindling and geriatric fellowship uh, programs still do not fill all their positions. And that could be related to the lifestyle, that could be related to uh, reimbursement, and there is no extra reimbursement for geriatricians, as you can imagine. Now, you know, take that in, you know, with the fact that it takes me almost, you know, double the time 
to see a geriatric, you know, uh, a patient compared to a young patient, and the reimbursements are practically the same. And you know, there was, um, you know, some adjustments for the reimbursement where we saw actually a hit uh, in the middle of COVID for uh, geriatricians and people working in the nursing home. Now, you know, granted it was reversed uh, uh, to a net neutral, but you know, these are the kinds of things that will make you know, a big difference and it has to be attractive for people to go into geriatrics as a, as a specialty. It's a social, uh, culturally as well as if it feels that uh, we as a society generally have a lot of problems with accepting that we're getting older, even though, as Stephanie says, we all get older. I think there's still a, a big stigma around it. And, and uh, generally, uh, we're all trying to figure out how to stay young uh, as much as possible. And I think there's a fear of death as well, you know, and certainly I think it's probably something that we just want to put out of our mind. So I'm sure there's a, there's a very heavy social cultural, you know, challenge as well. That's that's true. What led you to geriatrics then? How did you find this and what do you find to be most fulfilling? What drives your passion for this? So I kind of stumbled on geriatrics. Um, you know, I was not uh, born in this country. I was, uh, you know, born in India. I did my medical school training in India. And then, you know, when I was doing my residency training in a hospital in New York, you know, I saw that most of the patients were, were seniors. And, you know, I started learning more about dementia and delirium and many other geriatric syndromes. And I felt almost ill-equipped to deal with these things. And, you know, it's almost, you know, in regular training, you don't learn in, you know, so much about these things other than the fact that, you know, you adjust this medication or that medication, but you don't really understand the disease truly. And I wanted to learn more about it, um, you know, and I enjoyed working with the elderly. And I think, you know, that took me to uh, geriatrics and ever since I've been practicing geriatrics. You, you had mentioned us if the number of uh, societies that you've been uh, a part of and you're a leader in and how they've been helped you, helped you to prepare uh, for, for the roles that you're playing uh, and as well as helping with the, with the current crisis underway. So I wonder if you can make a little bit more mention about those. So I, as uh, you know, Stephanie introduced me, uh, I'm, uh, I chaired the Geriatric Summit yes, at the Mass Medical Society. Um, and you know, that's a committee of like-minded folks like myself, there are some you know, very interestingly, there are some residents in training uh, and even medical students who, you know, took it upon themselves to learn more about geriatrics, either through a personal connection or an experience. And, and that's remarkable. Um, and we talk about, you know, all things geriatrics. It's not just the nursing home. We are talking about PACE programs. We're talking about uh, assisted living. We, uh, you know, help the Department of Public Health with certain projects, for example. We have a lobbyist that, uh, in Mass Medical Society, and we look at resolutions and you know upcoming uh, legislation, for example. So that's an active group. The other group that I'm a part of, I, I used to be the uh, uh, I'm the past president of the Greater New England chapter of uh, organization called AMDA, which used to be you know American Medical Directors Association. But then you know we went through a little bit of change a few years ago to be more inclusive. And now it's called the Society of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, uh, where we are not just limited to doctors, because a lot of this care is delivered by 
uh, advanced practitioner nurses, for example, you know, uh, NPs, uh, physician assistants, and so forth. And you know, this is really the backbone of the workforce in, in nursing homes. Um, you know, these uh, professional societies do help. You know, in early COVID, we had members from uh, the state of Washington where COVID hit first. You know, was one of the first nursing homes there. Um, we shared experiences and brought best practices to the East Coast, for example. So the network is strong, it's very reliable, um, and we've got great people. It's great to hear that these organizations are able to bring their resources and attention to bear on this challenging issue, especially, you know, I, I, I know that there's been a struggle in general in getting more geriatricians into the field, but I guess I never realized that the numbers are actually declining. Uh, and it's interesting to me what you that you mentioned that in contrast that hospitalists, for example, are growing. As you know, I'm a hospitalist by background, and I wonder, you know, I guess I thought that hospitalists would in general be a be a part of the solution. But has that has that been part of the problem that the growth in hospitalists is that taking away from growth in uh, geriatrics? You know, the one thing we believe in geri uh, geriatrics uh, is flexibility. So you know, we you know, I I am a partner at the one of the uh, geriatric practices in the Boston area where we deliver healthcare to nursing home and assisted living residents. And we do have some hospitals on, on staff with us. So it's a matter of, you know, the right training for the hospitals. And, and most of, you know, the, the doctors who work in nursing homes learn by trial and error, um, or they kind of feel their way around it, but, you know, they could easily be set up a, a program, you know, that would, you know, teach hospitalists a little bit more about nursing home care. Because hospitalists are, you know, they're, they're good with the medical piece of it, but they may, you know, benefit from some social, uh, you know, training or the regulatory training, because, you know, nursing homes are one of the most heavily regulated industries, much worse than the hospitals. You know, somebody joked, you know, I get this joke a lot, it's the most heavily regulated industry after nuclear plants. So, <laughs> You know, you can imagine, you know, there are a, a, a whole set of regulations, both from the federal government, uh, the state government, they have to go by local laws, they have to go by their own bylaws. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a regulation heavy. What are, what do you think the biggest thing that people, other doctors don't know about practicing geriatrics? Are there things that if they went into that and they walked a day in your shoes that they would say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that this was such a struggle or I had no idea that treating patients who are elderly is different in this way because of these challenges. What don't people know about being a geriatrician? I think that's a great question. And, and as I, you know, I, I alluded to it a little bit, you have to be very flexible and very resourceful. I think those are the two key things that you know, somebody needs to be a geriatrician. Now, I hear this all the time from my colleagues who are, you know, primary care physicians. Uh, say, oh, I take care of older patients, so I'm a geriatrician too. No, you're not, because, you know, you've not gone through the training. You could have become a geriatrician, you know, taking care of geriatric patients over years and, and learning from those experiences. But there is a pathway where you can get trained and be out as a geriatrician in one or two years. I mean, you know, that's the whole idea of fellowship training. I can see, I see patients with, uh, you know, heart and it doesn't make me a cardiologist. I see patients who have livers and it doesn't make me a hepatologist. 
you know, so those are the analogies that I would use. Um, but I think what people need to understand, as I said, is a geriatrician works, you know, in any healthcare setting. So we have, uh, you know, house calls. We see people at home. We see people in assisted living. We see people in nursing homes. We see people in, uh, you know, LTACs, uh, long-term acute care hospitals. We see people within the hospital. Uh, you know, geriatricians work in uh, geri psych units, for example. So the the location doesn't really matter. You know, uh, I think we get a, a, a flavor of taking care of patients wherever they are. And that's something that, you know, uh, I think is not appreciated by, uh, by, you know, the rest of the medical community until they have to see that, uh, you know, uh, uh, as a first-hand experience. Yeah, it's so, it's so true. I think that ultimately it's not, uh, you know, uh, taking care of an older patient isn't just a, you know, function of the age, right? There's so many different dimensions in, in terms of the physiology uh, that you have to be taking into account. Uh, Asif, what about the relationship piece? That's something that hasn't yet come up in our conversation. We hear about that a lot, particularly with, with some of our other guests that we've had, how important it is uh, to establish that relationship in order to improve care. Can you comment on that and, and how that might differ from the rest of medicine? I think it's a part of medicine, right? You have to connect, number one. And people have to trust you because without trust, you can't treat somebody. Mm -hmm. Now in, in geriatrics, you know, it becomes a little bit similar to pediatrics also, where the relationship is not only with the, with the patient, you know, the resident, it's also with the family. And, you know, in pediatrics, we're dealing with parents. In geriatrics, we're dealing with, you know, usually the sons and the daughters, um, you know, sometimes brothers and sisters or, or um, you know, nieces and nephews. And, you know, that level of connection has to be there. You have to know who's, you know, in charge, who's the healthcare proxy, who's the next of kin, um, you know, and establish some kind of rapport with them. Um, you know, you also have to keep them informed how they're doing because they may not be local. They may be in, you know, a state, you know, uh, 2000 miles away. I can totally <laughs> relate to that. And I actually have a different turn on the question related to that, but I've been a consumer of the healthcare system in many ways since 2015. And one of them was with my dad and he had cancer. He was getting treatment in Pennsylvania. I was in South Carolina and ended up having a stroke and a heart attack. And he was in the hospital on a ventilator for a month sedated. And I'm in South Carolina with a, a baby in the NICU who was born three months early in the hospital with her. And I'm the next of kin. And so they're like, you know, what do you want to do? What does your dad want? My dad didn't say anything. He didn't, he wouldn't tell me what stage of cancer he had, what treatments he was getting. And here you are in this situation that you're making literal life or death decisions for people. And you have no idea what to do. So you really have to lean on your healthcare providers and just trust in them and what they're saying. But also what would you tell these patients who I think there probably are plenty of patients like my dad who just don't want to deal with it because it's scary. You're dealing with something that could end your life. And in his case, it did. If you don't know, you don't know what their wishes are. And I feel like there's so many people in that situation that their parents or grandparents or whoever just haven't told them or whatever. Cause again, it's scary and you don't want to think about death. Like what Porb was saying before. 
you know, those are certainly important topics. And, you know, as a geriatrician, we, we always talk about what we call advanced care planning, right? So it's planning for the future. And it can be not just about, you know, what your choices are for your healthcare, which is certainly a very important part of it, but also about, you know, financial management or, you know, assigning somebody as the power of attorney or, you know, very simply, uh, you know, who would you want to make decisions for you uh, in the event you can't make decisions yourself. So, you know, who will be the uh, the healthcare proxy, for example. And then, you know, the state laws, uh, you know, may be a little bit different. Some states recognize a living will, for example, and many states, including Massachusetts, do not recognize living will as a legal document. You know, they may, there are attorneys who specialize in this, um, you know, from a, a point of view of, you know, financial planning or where they will be, you know, if they need something like nursing home care or assisted living, which can be very expensive care, uh, you know, in those locations. So, you know, this is certainly important. And, you know, Americans are not in the habit of really discussing about death and, you know, uh, if they will need intubation or ICU care, you know, or, or afternoon coffee. So, you know, you know, we encourage families to start you know, think of, think, at least thinking about these things, having some discussion, because the default status is, you know, for what you know, somebody comes in, they don't have any advanced directives. You're going to, you know, do CPR, you're going to intubate them, you're going to, you know, stick them up in the ICU if you're successful. But the success rate of, you know, those people getting discharged from the hospital is, you know, I could count on my fingers, really. So these are important topics. Um, and then, you know, dying with, uh, with dignity, you know, that's important to a lot of seniors. You know, there's been many surveys out there, much research out there, with, you know, a lot of people want to be at home, you know, when they're breathing their last you know, few breaths, they do not want to die in, in a hospital, certainly not in the ICU, but they want to be in the comfort of their homes. And, and this is an opportunity to talk to when, you know, they, uh, you know, they are still able to make those decisions. I have become super comfortable with that. I was at lunch with my aunt the other day and I was like, have you had this preventive exam? Have you talked to your children about who's making decisions? Have you told them this? Because it's so important and people don't want that, you know, don't, just don't want to talk about it. And I think that that's something that a geriatrician would probably, you know, a new geriatrician going in, or like you said, a hospitalist who may not be trained in this at all it's a big thing that you're like, oh my gosh, nobody knows what to do with this person. What are we doing? It's a challenge and it needs more, more emphasis, the whole circle, the whole life cycle of it. I'll ask a question to you, Stephanie, before I ask us if, you know, now that you've become more expert in having that conversation, how did that conversation go with your aunt? She did not like it. <laughs> she wasn't ready. <laughs> she came to my house a couple of days later and I said to her, I said, oh, good. I was afraid that you were definitely not coming back because you were like, she's going to be following up with me on that preventive care. But it is, it's so important. I'll be like, do you have a will? Have you, because it's such a big deal and people don't know that. You know, my dad, I love him, but he did not want to talk about healthcare. He died without a will, without telling me anything about his condition, without saying what his wishes were. I had none of it. So I actually asked them, I said, is he cognitively aware? And if he is, can you please take him off of sedation, loop him up to speed and tell him what's been happening and ask him what he wants to do? And they said, he is. And yes, we'll do that. And he made a decision that was 100% different than I would have thought 
based on my whole childhood with him. Wow. And it was shocking. So it's just so important. And I immediately went out and got a very detailed will, living will with, which now I'm learning is completely invalid in most states. And because I don't ever want to put my daughter in that situation that you just have no idea what to do because it makes things harder. And that's what people don't realize. It makes them harder. It makes it harder for you. It makes it harder for the people caring for you. It makes it harder for the medical team caring for you because they're just like, I want it. You know, if you want this care, I need to do it now. Time is of the essence. And you don't want to have people standing around with their hands in the air, not knowing what to do. So true. That's really fascinating. Um, so I'll, I'll turn to Asif. Uh, Asif, you have really educated us on uh, the role of geriatrics and nursing homes and the societies. Really tremendous. Um, I think my, my question to, you know, back to you would be, now that you've seen uh, that there is greater attention uh, that's being placed on nursing homes in, in the aftermath of COVID, uh, we talked a little bit about this uh, off the air before we started. Uh, what hope is there really that because uh, people have seen uh, that unpreparedness can can create so many challenges, uh, what, is the, what is the hope that you have for the future of geriatrics and the future of nursing homes? Uh, do you think that any of the changes will be lasting? You know, I don't know if there is lasting change. Um, I hope there is. I'm, uh, you know, cautiously optimistic, um, you know, about that. But I think we have the attention of the media, we have the attention of the lawmakers at this time. There are some um, you know, laws that hopefully will be enacted about additional funding. Um, you know, one of the problems that we've seen with nursing home care is everything is punitive. And I'm hoping there would be something more around education and how, you know, how to create teams that would help in the times of say a staffing shortage or a disaster which we kind of happened, but happened very late in this pandemic. Um, I would also hope that, you know, hospitals look at nursing homes as true partners um, and, you know, have that collaboration and offer resources because it comes a full circle. You know, if something happens in the nursing home, the hospital does get involved directly or indirectly. It's better to be directly involved and, and offer help upfront. Uh, so that their ERs are not, you know, at capacity or over capacity and their ICUs are not at capacity. And then I think there has to be some thought uh, process, you know, for the next disaster to happen because there will be a next disaster. You know, it could be 10 years from now, it could be, you know, 50 years from now, who knows? But, you know, this has to, I hopefully this, um, you know, remains in our, in our long-term memory. Um, and how we dealt with this and, you know, how we could deal with it, you know, even better. I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of research that comes along about what could have been done better. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we'd be better prepared next time around. Excellent. My final question sort of piggybacks off of that one. What is the one message that you would give to fellow doctors who are just choosing their path and considering geriatrics? And what is the one thing that you wish that families and patients would know about geriatrics? I think, you know, for families, um, really, you know, if they seek a geriatrician, it's, it's similar to, you know, you seeking a pediatrician for your, your children. You want somebody with that expertise, uh, you know, who has the training for it, who has, uh, you know, hopefully the certifications for it, because, you know, the training programs are robust. You learn about a lot of things in a short period of time that would ordinarily take, you know, a, a decade to learn, for example. You know, geriatricians are more in tune with, 
you know, drug-to-drug interactions, uh, polypharmacy, um, you know, geriatric syndromes, and, and that is definitely a plus. Um, you know, it also gives them a little bit more flexibility. We are resourceful because we work with very few resources. So you have to have, you know, the connections around or what do you do in difficult circumstances. So, you know, that certainly helps. Um, you know, most of us who work in nursing homes or independent, um, you know, can do a, a lot with very little. So I think that's, that's really important. You know, to uh, my fellow colleagues in medicine, I think it's, you know, some of the same things, you know, uh, you can work in a variety of healthcare settings. Uh, you can pick and choose where you want to work. Um, you know, if somebody wanted to work only in the hospital, they have the able, ability to do that. If somebody wanted to establish an outpatient consult in primary care practice, they can do that. They can have only a nursing home practice. So it offers you a lot of flexibility. Um, you know, a lot of geriatricians also, um, you know, are entrepreneurs in many ways, and that certainly helps. Um, but it's also better care of patients. And, you know, our patients are primarily seniors. Um, you know, that is really important to understand and know, um, you know, uh, good medicine. And also about, you know, uh, was a little bit of what we discussed was palliative care. So there is a palliative care training, you know, that's involved in geriatrics as well. Well, thank you so much. This is a fascinating conversation. We covered a lot of topics. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll talk to you all soon. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.